1: When we read the scriptures and apply them to our lives, we can often come away as believers with an us them mentality. Us being the church, them being secular society. Us the Christians, them the non Christians. And this us them mentality is right, it is biblical. Because we're not talking about sports teams, we're not talking about language barriers, or even political parties. We are talking about those who are either for God or against them. The very premise of my sermon last week was that as Christians, we are at war. But we must remember that our our war primarily is against the sin that dwells within us. And as far as the external war is concerned, we are not fighting against the people, but against the very same worldview and sin that we too were once enslaved to. So, the us-them mentality is not us against them, it is us for them. Think about it. If God's primary desire For us, as Christians, is to worship him, we would be in heaven, where we can worship freely without the hindrance of sin or worldly responsibilities. If God's main goal for us was to know and study his word, he would take us home, where we would not only be able to fully understand the word, but in his presence would experience, touch, and feel The Word made flesh. And although he does want us to focus on those disciplines while we are here on earth, there is only one aspect of Christian living that we are called to do, that we cannot do in heaven, and that is evangelize the lost. Because they will not be in heaven. They will only be here. Friends, it is not us against them. It is us for them. We are still here on earth for them. We preach the gospel for them. We are salt and light for them. We pray for them. And that's exactly what Paul talks about as we begin chapter 2 of First Timothy. In verses 1 through 4 of First Timothy chapter 2, he writes, First of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now before we take a deep dive into this text, it is important to know today and for the next few weeks that all of chapter two is addressing public worship. Paul is instructing Timothy on specifics of how an orderly worship service, a church service, should be conducted. And just in case you are not familiar, over the next 45 minutes or so, when I say things like public worship, church service, corporate worship, That is all talking about what we are doing here on a Sunday morning when we gather together within the walls of the church. Now the emphasis of Paul here is on particular aspects of service in chapter 2. He's not going to give us an outline for an order of service. He's not going to address everything that should happen in a church service. But he is addressing issues that are most likely at fault or are not happening within the church of Ephesus so that Timothy Can address them. Now, when you keep this in mind, it will help you to understand why, as we will see over the next few weeks, different individuals, specifically genders, males and females, are specified. This does not mean that what is commanded or prohibited is limited to those individuals when it comes to their private or personal worship. But when it comes to a church service, there are limitations, and we will see those over the next few weeks. And this idea of giving instructions for the church as a whole is further emphasized in chapter three when, at the end of this instruction for public worship, he goes straight into the qualifications of an elder. That being said, what you will see in all of this instruction, as you see in any instruction from God, is what the Lord wills and what the Lord prioritizes, it's what he wants. So, what that means is, though this is instruction for a church service, there is much we can learn about what God wants us to do in our private worship, our private lives. And with that in mind, this morning, we will look at four instructions for public prayer. Four instructions for public prayer public meaning within a church service. And unlike some later passages that I briefly referred to in chapter 2, all four of these instructions that we will look at this morning can be emulated in your personal lives. Four instructions for public prayer. The first is that public prayer is to be supreme. Public prayer is to be supreme. He begins in this chapter of instruction for public worship by saying, Timothy, first of all then, this is a short but significant point. He is not saying with this word first in chronology. He is not saying when you gather together, the first thing you should do is pray. He is using first as in first in importance. This is of primary importance. No matter when it happens in the church service, it must be done. And this is an outpour, as we see in the word then, that connects to what he just said. This is an outpour of Paul explaining that Timothy was specifically called for this purpose, this ministry, and then told by Paul, fight the good fight, fight the war, fight well, fight the good fight. Thus, Paul, first of all, pray. Now, this does not mean that you disregard the other aspects of corporate worship, but that you definitely do not disregard this one. All that he is going to say is important. But prayer for all people and, a little preview, evangelistic prayer for all people is of the utmost importance. Let's move on to see what exactly this entails. Our second instruction for public prayer is that public prayer is to be sweeping. It is to be sweeping, exhaustive, all-inclusive. First of all then, he says, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. Then verse 2, for kings and all who are in authority. We'll stop there. What we see here is that the sweeping nature of public prayer is twofold. First, it is to involve all forms of prayer. Second, it is to involve all People pray for everyone, pray every type of prayer for all people. Well, first, let's look at the different types of prayer that Paul mentions here. These words, entreaties, prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings are descriptions of different kinds of prayer. They are all words for a type of prayer, they all have a different nuance. And to be thorough, Paul mentions these four types of prayer to be thorough. I will explain the nuance of each. But as I explain these, understand that Paul's main point here is not that we make a distinction between the different types of prayer, but that we pray for all men. That's his ultimate point. In other words, in our practical living out of Christianity and within our public worship services, we are not to press the distinction between these terms but to make sure that prayer and prayer for all people for their salvation is central to our worship. Nevertheless, let's take a look at each one. First up, we have entreaties. In the ESV and King James, this is the word supplications, requests in the NIV. This word is the noun form of a verb that means to have an audience, With a king. We get that when we're talking about prayer, an audience with the king. And in Paul's day, this word would be used to refer to any correspondence that was addressed to the king. Now, when it comes to prayer, this type of prayer is a specific prayer for a specific need, it is a request. And what this kind of prayer would sound like is the statement of the need. And the request of God to provide for or fill that need. The word implies a lack of something that you are now asking God to supply. And since the emphasis in this text is on public prayer for others, this is a petitioning of God to act on or on behalf of other people. And as we will see again, their greatest need is, of course, salvation. The next word prayers is a more general word for prayer, which is why it is translated into English as such. This is also why in most major English versions of the Bible, there are no different differences. It is all the word prayer. It's the most generic word for prayer in the Greek New Testament. This means simply coming before God with our requests. And we ask God Because he is ultimately the only one who can fulfill those requests and meet our needs. As I've said before, God is the only one who can do anything about anything. And although he quite frequently uses other people, other organizations, other institutions, other things to bring about the fulfillment of our needs, we know that he is behind it all. He is ultimately the provider. It can be a doctor or a prescription, a bank or a job, sunshine or rain. It is all from God. It could be argued that our next type of prayer, petitions, would be more appropriately translated appeal. Intercessions is what the other English versions say. The basic idea of this word is to have a meeting with someone or to get involved with another person. So you can picture a conversation, for example, with your boss or your supervisor or a loan agent at the bank and presenting your case in this meeting. That's the idea here. Specifically, this would be presenting your case that involves a petition or request to a superior. And when we petition or intercede on behalf of someone else, This is not merely us taking some sort of role that we have to do, maybe like a lawyer who's just doing his job. Inherent in this word and the Christian life is that the petitioner has a genuine concern for the difficulty that the person they are praying for is enduring. This word means there is compassion, there is involvement, there is empathy, there is sympathy. This will in turn bring forth a boldness, an urgency, and a consistency to our prayers. And when it comes to praying for all men, there needs to be in particular a compassion for their plight as those who are lost and will face the judgment of God. On a broader scale, this is a great reminder and warning of why we may not pray as often as we ought. And that's because we do not care as much as we ought. Thanksgivings, the last one, is often the most overlooked aspect or type of prayer. This is probably the case among believers because we are so trusting in the Lord and so desperate in our needs that we jump to the ask and we fail to praise. Thanksgivings are expressions of gratitude. Gratitude to God for who he is. Gratitude to God for what he has done. But more specifically in this context, gratitude to God on behalf of those you are praying for. And gratitude to God for those you are praying for. In other words, we must be mindful of whom we are approaching in prayer and whom we are praying for. We do not pray in anger towards others, in hatred of others. We pray because we have compassion for others. And again, a little preview for you. This is really going to come down to bear for many of us when we are called to pray the President of the United States. Giving thanks is not a special kind of prayer. It is normal prayer, at least a part of normal prayer. Granted, there will be quick prayer, those arrow prayers where you're swerving because someone slammed on the brakes or ran a red and you quickly say, God, help me. There will be prayers like that where there is no time for thanksgiving. But when we talk about our prayers in public, when we talk about our prayers in terms of our quiet times, there must be an aspect of thanksgiving because Philippians 4.6 and Colossians 4.2 make it clear that without thanksgiving, what you are doing is not actually prayer. Philippians 4.6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known. To God. Colossians 4:2, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. The foundational, the underlying, the background attitude of all prayer should be thanksgiving. And naturally, in prayer, that will come out in words or thoughts in your prayers. Now, on a practical level, giving thanks helps you remember and realize that every time you pray, You are entering the throne room of God. It centers us and it helps us to have the right attitude of reverence. Abba, Father, Daddy, yes, but Creator God also. Giving thanks also gives us a greater confidence in God. And a boldness in prayer as we reflect on all the things he has already done. As we count our blessings and thank him for who he is. We are reminded that yes, he can answer this prayer. Yes, he is bigger than the disease. He is sovereign over your job. And he has answered the prayers that you prayed in the past. The prayers he has answered are part of what we thank God for. When you take this list, of four types of prayer as a whole, you see that when you pray biblically, your prayers will contain all four of these elements to varying degrees. Now, obviously, the situation that needs prayer, the time of prayer, and the circumstances you find yourself in when you pray, these are all factors that will dictate which element is emphasized more than the others. But in your prayer life as a whole, They should all be present. In fact, as I described each of those four words, you probably said, well, that's prayer. And that's prayer. He just described that the way he described the other one. And that's because, again, we're not trying to make distinctions. We are just trying to pray biblically. And so, when talking about the sweeping or exhaustive nature of prayer... We have now seen the first aspect of this in the various facets of prayer, but again, the distinction between these four is not Paul's point. His main point is the second aspect of the sweeping nature of prayer, and that is it is to include all men. Prayer is to be made on behalf of all men. All men means all people, and it includes both believers and unbelievers, sinners. And saints. But in the direct context, we know that this is particularly for unbelievers. In the wider context, prayer, and especially prayer for unbelievers, is part of how the church deals with false teachers. That's very important because that in itself is a great reminder. Because as believers, we far too quickly look to ourselves and others, and their theological aptitude and apologetic abilities to deal with false teachers when we should first and foremost be looking to God in prayer, and not even firstly for the protection of the saints, but for the heretics' salvation. We must ingrain in our minds the all-men part of this before we move on. Because as we look at the next phrase, kings and all who are in authority, we can easily lose sight, especially of different because of different passages that emphasize emphasizes the Christians' allegiance to government authority, we can lose sight of the all men part of it. Remember, we're talking about all men. But then he does specify for a specific reason those who are in charge. Kings are not all rulers. Kings would include anyone who possesses the highest power in a nation, whether that be a king or queen in a monarchy, a president or prime minister in a democracy, or even a dictator in a dictatorship, or any supreme ruler, even if he doesn't have a title, but everyone knows he's behind the scenes calling the shots. A sobering reminder is that as Paul writes this for the early Christians, he is calling the early Christians here and elsewhere, Peter does the same thing, to submit to and pray for Nero, who was the Roman emperor, who took great entertainment in delight in his cruel ways of torturing Christians, known for dipping Christians in a form of oil, tying them to posts, and lighting these living Christians on fire as lighting for his garden parties. Not to mention the fact that he burned down Rome and then blamed it on the Christians. Any sort of civil authority under the supreme ruler of any given nation would be covered in Paul's phrase, and all those who are in authority. In our country, we would probably say all those who hold office. And we understand the importance and purpose of prayer. But as we continue, we see Paul give us a specific reason for prayer for those he has singled out. That is kings and all those who are in authority. And we'll see this in our next or third instruction for public prayer. Public prayer is to be strategic. It is to be strategic. Look at the end of verse 2. So that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. The so that, that starts this part of the sentence, connects what he is about to say to praying for kings and all who are in authority. This so that is referencing not praying for all men, but specifically those in political power. And the reason is so that we can live out our Christianity without fear of persecution or repercussions. What we need to understand, especially as Americans, is that there is no promise of religious liberty in the Scriptures. In other words, there is no promise that God will even answer this prayer in the affirmative. Many Christians have been praying for their leaders for decades, if not centuries, and they are still persecuted legally by the government and are, by law, forbidden to worship Jesus Christ. We, in God's sovereignty, live in a country where we are free to congregate as a people and freely worship Jesus Christ. We even have protections from the government to do so. If one of you disliked something I said, and in the part of the sermon that everyone knows is that there's only one person speaking, the preacher, and you stand up and you say, that's not true. We have the same protections from the government if you stood up in the middle of a Broadway show and disrupted the show. You would be removed and arrested. We in God's sovereignty, and in his grace, live in a country where these things are true. Nevertheless, we are to continue to pray for our leaders for the specific purpose stated here, that the freedoms we have will continue. And the we refers to Christians and thus Christian living that will be, in your Bible, tranquil and quiet in all godliness and dignity. Together, the words tranquil and quiet picture the Christian being able to live out his life with dignity, with integrity, meaning according to what he believes. That means no stress, no difficulty. Again, we're talking about the Christian faith. That doesn't mean that as a Christian, you will not face stress or difficulty because of work or at home, or because of family. This is talking about the absence of legislative intrusion into living out the Christian faith. How you respond to your secular responsibilities, as well as your own sin, those are separate issues and involve separate prayers. I was just sharing with a membership class yesterday how almost scarily easy it is to get a non-profit status in America if you are a religious organization because of the freedom of religion that the government does not want to infringe upon. We need to be thankful for that. Now, to be specific, the word tranquil refers to the absence of external turmoil and pressure. The word quiet refers to the absence of internal turmoil and pressure. Again, this doesn't mean the complete absence of difficulty or even that we are to live a sheltered life. But it means the absence of disturbance from the government that would hinder your ministry. The reality is that civil authorities do have the power to affect our ability to live out our Christianity. They can make it harder. They can make it cost more. They can make us fear more. And, despite how you may think or feel, any such negative pressure from the government is very minimal, perhaps the most minimal globally in the United States. But there is no promise in Scripture that this will last, so pray. There are people in this world in 2023... And they will still be there in 2024, these laws that are required by government for them to face the death penalty because they said two words, Jesus Christ. I know we like to complain about how our culture is going. We need to pray about that. We need to stand up against that. But you have to understand how good we have it. And as I describe how the church is pressured and forced underground in so many countries that people are being killed by their own fathers because they have turned to the faith, and we say, well, it's coming. Look at the White House. It's coming. Please, Christian, do not use a future hypothetical as an excuse for sinful bitterness and anger and refusal to pray and submit to Our governing authorities. The ultimate goal here is stated at the end of the verse. So we can live in all godliness and dignity. We can do that now in the U.S. We know that God looks at the heart. But we also know that God looks at our actions. And I think sometimes we emphasize the heart so much that we forget that there is a doing to do in response to the heart. We saw that in James. And again, the wrong kind of government can stifle our external behavior. Paul mentions godliness, which is true reverence for God. It is the proper response to God and his character. Dignity means seriousness, gravity, moral earnestness. It refers to both outward behavior and inward intention. When we look at the wider context of what Paul is saying, which again we'll unpack in the weeks ahead, we know that a peaceful life is not the end goal. It is a peaceful life because the right type of national leadership will create or maintain an environment that is conducive to evangelism. And we see Paul build on this principle elsewhere in the New Testament. Meet me in Romans 13, and we'll read verses 1 through 7 perhaps one of the most well-known passages in Scripture regarding the Christian's attitude toward government. Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So right there, we see, as long as the government is not mandating that you sin, when you say, well, I don't need to obey the government because I obey God, God is saying it's the same thing because I created government. Verse 2, therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. Remember Nero as we read this. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, But also for conscience sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing, render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And by the way, that in part answers your questions that a lot of people submit regarding taxes and what our tax dollars go to. Now, Paul doesn't talk about praying for authorities in this passage, Romans 13, but he clearly outlines our responsibility toward them. Starting with the reminder that though sin has made it grossly imperfect, God established human government and human authorities for good. And this passage brings out a sub-point that is also in First Timothy, which is that part of praying for government, and here in Romans 13, submitting to government, this is very important, is that we as Christians show government by our actions that they do not need to fear disloyalty, rebellion, or insurrection from the church. When you see... What happened on January 6th, the infamous January 6th, because your candidate lost, because the religious right lost. You can be bummed about that as long as you trust God that He is sovereign over that. But Christians, we do not rejoice in people storming a building with violence. And you should be grieved, not happy and excited. You should be grieved when some of those people, whether it's themselves or the media says, these are the Christians that back Trump. That should bother you. Because that goes against what the scriptures say. You want to be vocal about what we believe? You better be. You better stand up for the biblical definition of marriage. You better stand up for the protection of our children. And by children, I include those in our schools and those who are milliseconds post-conception in their mother's womb. But we don't do stuff like that. We are to submit to our governing authorities. And on a side note as with any human authority set by God in your life, you do not obey them if they call you to disobey him. It doesn't matter if it's your husband, if it's your parents, if it's your boss. These are all different authorities within the scriptures. If they tell you to sin, you do not sin. You do not obey them and say, well, the Bible says I'm supposed to submit. Well, why are you supposed to submit? Who said that? God did. So you submit to God first. His commands surpass any other commands. And this, by the way, is another reason I am so thankful for our country. Because although sin is promoted and sin is allowed and sin is legal, it is not mandated as it is in other countries. No one forces you to have an abortion. No one says you have to marry someone of the same sex. No one says we looked at your history, sir. You played with dolls. You need to transform into a female. It is not forced upon us. And there are countries where Christians are told by their kings, are told by their authorities, are told by their bosses and even their parents and husbands, stop going to church, stop evangelizing, marry an unbeliever, or go to the public square and tell people that Jesus Christ is not God. They are told to do that by law do you understand how thankful you should be that you live here? Whether it's your parents, your grandparents, or 50 generations ago that someone decided in God's sovereignty that they would get on a ship or a plane or flee on a man-made boat to come to this country so that years later, you can worship Jesus Christ this morning right here. And all of it is legal. You didn't think twice this morning. You might have rushed around and said, Honey, where's my Bible? None of you said, Where is my fake cover of the Quran that I put over my Bible so we don't get stopped on the street and dragged to prison on the way to church? This is what missionaries do in Yemen they hide Bibles in Quran covers. So that they don't get killed. They witnessed to the people. Who a few years ago. Part of the rich and elite. You've seen the garments that they wear. The robes and the cloth around their neck. One of the best sellers. The missionary told me. Is embroidered on their planes. Flying into the twin towers. We have it good. Others do not. We need to continue praying. We see this also in First Peter 2, 13 through 17. Let me read that for you. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. It is the fools that say the Christians want rebellion. We silence them by how we behave. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Titus 3, 1 and 2. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. To malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, Showing every consideration for all men. Now, again, we live in a time when our lives are not only affected by the leaders of the country we live in, more than ever, we are connected to the rest of the world, such as that what happens maybe doesn't affect our way of life here in America, but it affects our finances, it affects our media, it affects our relatives. When is the last time you prayed for President Biden? When is the last time you prayed for Vladimir Putin? When's the last time you prayed for Xi Jinping? And when you did, what did you pray? It is fine to pray for the Lord to remove them from office, from power, even if it's God's will to pray that he remove them from this earth. But we are not commanded to do those things we are commanded to pray for their salvation. As well as that they will rule in such a way that the laws of the land allow us and other Christians around the world to live freely and peaceably. And as a side note, if you put two and two together, you recognize that those Christians battle with these passages because they too are told to submit to their governing authorities and my prayer and my hope is that they understand the scriptures well enough which they don't own so it's just what others have memorized and recited to them or that some godly man or woman has told them no you don't stop going to church because you obey god first we need to pray for these people We are commanded, back to the text, to pray for the salvation of all people, especially our rulers, that we might live in a way that God allows us and commands us. And I want to mention this. In our two-party system, we know that one party aligns more with Christian belief than the other. This is no secret Sometimes I say this to people in the Bible Belt, and they think I'm making this up. And I say, this is their platform. Listen to their debates. They get votes by promoting abortion and same-sex marriage. They are very vocal about this. That being said, as a Christian, it is not wrong to pray for certain people to be in the White House or certain party to run our government, And that can loosely be deduced from what Paul writes here. Because in our system, we know that a certain party, if they're in control, it will prolong the ability to live the way we want to live. However, what Paul is clearly writing is not that we primarily pray for the right person to be in the White House. But that regardless of who it is, we always pray for the person who is in the White House And especially for his salvation. As we move on, we will see that what Paul has been writing about all along is a specific type of prayer for all men that I've already alluded to. By way of review, we have seen three of our four instructions for public prayer. Public prayer is to be supreme, it is to be sweeping, and it is to be strategic. And finally, and this underlines everything we've already said. Public prayer is to be salvific. It is to be evangelistic. It is to be soteriological. We are to pray for their salvation. Look at verses 3 and 4. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is connected to prayer, so we know that this is what he is saying we are to pray about. If I were to say, you need to pray, and this is a hypothetical that is false, okay? You need to pray that he is healed, period, because God wants everyone to be healed. Okay, that's not true. But even though it's a second sentence, you understand that now, what I'm talking about, or if I didn't say heal, if I said you need to pray for him, period, God wants everyone to be healed, you understand that when I said pray for him, I mean for his healing. So within this context is the same thought. We understand that when he says pray for all men and rulers and all those in authority, we are to pray according to God's desire that all men be saved. So we learn here the ultimate purpose of why we are to pray for all men which in turn tells us what we are to pray for all men. We are to pray that they are saved. Praying for all men, Paul writes, is good, meaning intrinsically and morally good. Praying for the lost to be saved is always a good thing. It is biblical. It honors the Lord. It is excellent because it fits within God's divine purposes for man. Paul also says that this is acceptable. The word acceptable means to welcome or receive. And it reminds us that God accepts everything that corresponds with his nature. To put it another way, praying for the salvation of all men pleases God, who for added emphasis, Paul says, is our savior. Even more than the salvation of others and being able to live a quiet and tranquil life, this is our motivation. To do that which pleases the Lord is the highest motive that any Christian can have, even higher than being able to worship freely. Our highest motivation is to please and honor the Lord. And the importance of this for God, for how God views things, is seen in that Paul doesn't just say that it is good and acceptable to God, but in the sight of God. To give a loose translation of this phrase to the English, we would say today face-to-face. It shows us how closely and intimately he views this, emphasizing the full awareness of our fellowship with God when we pray and especially when we pray this prayer. And verse 4 brings it all to a fitting conclusion as it describes the will of God and thus our prayers for all men. God desires all to be saved. What Paul says is to come to the knowledge of the truth that is synonymous with understanding and accepting the gospel message. This points to the aspect of salvation that requires an intellectual knowledge and rational decision to follow him the truth here being a technical term that Paul uses throughout the pastoral epistles to refer to the gospel. Now, the elephant in the room. God's desire for all men to be saved does not contradict the doctrine of election. Rather, it is an expression of God's love. Because of his justice Condemning unbelievers to an eternity in hell glorifies God, but that does not mean he takes pleasure in it. His love makes him desire all to be with him, but his justice needs to hold them accountable to their sin and rejection of him. How that works in the infinite mind of God is a mystery to our finite minds. You will not understand it. Don't try. But we know from the New Testament and the Old that the responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God both exist. We are commanded to do things, to exert our energy to do things. Let me put it in a simple way. Is God sovereign over all things? Absolutely. And we can take comfort when our family member rejects over and over the gospel. You can say, well, God is sovereign. Again, the doctrine of election, trust in Him. But what did you do? You shared the gospel with them. But let me ask you this question, which helps us understand this God is sovereign over all things. Would you agree? When you sin, is that your responsibility or his? It's yours. So in many ways, at least when we put it into practical terms, you understand this. Now we wrestle with this. I was just talking with someone earlier. We wrestle with this uh, because it is an issue that affects our practical lives. The doctrine of election. We easily can use as an excuse not to evangelize or to... Uh, find comfort or appease our guilty conscience when we wimped out of sharing the gospel. Well, if they're elect, they'll be saved. And so it comes to play more in our outworking of our Christian life. And so we battle that. What is it? God's sovereignty or are we responsible? And the answer is yes. And the reason I'm saying this is there is much that you live for, you would die for, that makes absolutely no sense in the human mind, scientifically, logically, but you accept it. You cannot be 100 percent man or and 100 percent God, because you can't be 200 percent. And if we take that into science and math, we say, "Well, 50, 50, what? 50? no, 100 percent. You accept that. We trust by faith. What God has given us is a gift, faith. The Holy Trinity makes no sense. By every human definition of the principle, we are polytheists. Introduce me to any of your friends that are three persons, but one that don't need a psychiatrist. You can't have it. It doesn't work, but we accept that and worship them and him. And so there are times where we just say, I will do my best to understand the scriptures profoundly, but I will trust God that there's only so much that the human mind in our sin can comprehend. It might help to know here in 1 Timothy 2, that in the Greek there is a word that is translated the will of decree. He decrees it. He commands it. The word that Paul uses here is the will of desire. It's not a decree. It is a desire. And ultimately, the fact that not all are saved cannot be blamed on divine desire, but only on human pride, sin, and stubbornness. Really quickly, we can't overlook that God's desire for salvation includes all men. In the immediate context, this includes even the most wicked of political leaders. In the broader context, going back to the teaching of the false teachers, salvation is not just for the spiritual elite as they would teach or just the Jews as others of the false teachers would teach. It is the gospel is open for all. And when it comes to how we are to respond to all of this, it is with prayer. Prayer for the salvation of all men because we recognize that there is a universal accessibility to God's salvation. And praise God, it is not limited to any gender, race, religion, sexual preference, or political standing. So let's pray that way. Let's pray in a way that reflects what God sees. And what God sees has nothing to do with DNA or biology. What God sees is a sinner in need of saving grace. Four instructions for public prayer. Public prayer, and again, these are all things that we can, unlike other teachings in First Timothy 2, these are ones we must apply in our personal lives as well. But sticking with the context, public prayer is to be supreme. It is to be sweeping, that is all-inclusive. It is to be strategic. It is to be salvific. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now as believers who are frustrated. We are scared. And because of that, we often forget that ultimately the only solution is the salvation of those who are in charge. And so we pray, Father, for the salvation of President Biden. We pray for the salvation of Kamala Harris. We pray for the salvation of our leaders and our rulers, that you would bring them to the saving knowledge of you. We pray for protection of the Christians around the world, and we pray for the repentance of their leaders as well. We pray for the leaders of Ukraine. We pray for Vladimir Putin. We pray for an end to this war. We pray for the removal of his power. But most of all, we pray that you would show him your power and save him. We pray for what's going on in Israel, that you would give their leaders wisdom, that you would give their leaders insight. But most of all, Lord, that those Jewish leaders would recognize that the Messiah has come. We pray for our church that we would be people who pray and prioritize prayer, not only in our services, but in our own lives, that we would have compassion for the loss, and that would drive us to prayer. And we do pray, Lord, that saved or not, that our leaders would continue to allow us to live in a life of godliness and dignity in all tranquility and quietness. And may we do so for your glory and not look little upon the graces you have given us. May we not use the freedoms we have merely for our own desires and our wanton pleasures, but to serve you and to serve the lost. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand as we sing together.